Um, you guys see that Maverick game? What game? Yeah, that's exactly right. I watched three minutes of it, and uh, yeah, I was looking for Oprah. It's, yeah, it's no, at least three more games. That's not a, that was pathetic. I'll tell you what. Okay. I'm tempted to go to prayer over that, but I'm not going to do it. So, but we will pray. Father, we thank you for a, uh, we thank you, Lord, for, uh, for a beautiful day. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that when we got up this morning, we, uh, we had coffee, we had water, we've got indoor plumbing, we've got cars, uh, we don't walk to work, we don't load up a burrow and ride on his back somewhere. There are people in the world that do that. Uh, there are people in the world that went down to a creek and got water. We didn't do that. Uh, we, we have been so uh, favored by you. You have given us so much. Um, we have come to expect so much because we have so much. But Lord, don't ever let us lose our sense of thankfulness and our sense of wonder at what you have provided for us. We want to have grateful hearts. We don't want to be complainers like Israel. We want to... Uh, we, we want to be aware, we want to do the bookkeeping, and we want to look at the columns, the debits and the credits, and see that so much has been credited to our account that we have not deserved. So we come to you tonight with thankful hearts, with grateful spirits. We ask for perspective tonight as we look at this great section of, uh, of the Old Testament, this, this wonderful prayer in uh, the life of Israel and in the life of Nehemiah and Ezra, and these people who walked and who had families and who had jobs and who had fears and concerns just like we do. Uh, you were God to them and you're God to us. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would give us, each guy in this room, you'd give us tonight uh, precisely what we need. We need different things. We're dealing with different issues. Uh, perhaps some of us are getting ready to walk into some kind of ambush that the enemy has been preparing for us, and we're unaware of it. We're not even cognizant of it. Uh, give us spiritual discernment and awareness. Make us aware of the strategies of the enemy. Uh, give us uh, discernment spiritually. Help us to read sign spiritually so that we can understand where we are. We can understand your presence and your direction. Lord, we, uh, we live in confused times. We live in times of uncertainty and times of fear. Thank you that you have set us free from that. Thank you you've told us to be anxious for nothing. So tonight, Lord, as we look at this passage, ratchet down the anxiety level. Increase our peace and our contentment and our well-being and our uh, spirits that they would be thankful. And we would pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the best cheeseburger you've ever had? In and out. In and out. No, you're right. You guys have ever had an In and Out burger? You can only get them in California. They're not. They're not in Arizona yet. I don't think. Did they go to Arizona? Maybe they'll make their way eventually uh, to Texas. I, w I would agree. Those are great cheeseburgers. Jake's. Where's Jake's? In Dallas. Two locations, see? All right, we already got a controversy here. Country burger. Okay, country burger. Which one? 
Salina. All right? Some people say go to the Varsity in Atlanta. You ever been to the Varsity in Atlanta? You eat a double cheeseburger? You have a heart attack. You see? You go to Florida? See? All right, McGuire. See, the best. See, you guys are talking about these cheeseburgers, right? All right, what's the best? What's the best college football team ever? See, there'd be different teams. There'd be different teams, different years, right? Notre Dame, a Muslim school. You see, there's different, huh? Islam. Yeah, they're different. They're different. Uh, there are different opinions. Who's the best college football team ever? What's the best cheeseburger? Um, what's the best steakhouse? Cattleman's Bob. Say. Okay. Little house on the river. Say. Okay. All right. All right. Let's go to this one. What's the best barbecue? Now that, that'll get some. Okay. Sonny Bryan. It's Corky. I was speaking in Kansas City about 12 years ago. Anthony's in Fort Worth. Okay, they get their barbecue from Sonny Bryant's. Did you know that? Isn't this interesting? How how there's such a response, how there's such feedback, how there's such an interest, how there's such a divergence of of opinion here. Uh, 12, 15 years ago, I was speaking in Kansas City at a deal, the Family Life Conference. We're getting ready to break for lunch, and. We're talking to some guys. In fact, it was the open session. We were finished. So where are you guys going for lunch? And they said, you got any barbecue around? They go, oh, the greatest barbecue in the world is here. About five guys. Oh, the greatest barbecue. I said, where's that? They go, Arthur Bryant's. Is that it? Arthur Bryant? No, it's Arthur. They got Arthur in. So I went down there. I went with a couple friends of mine. We found out where we went down there. I want to tell you something. That was the worst barbecue I've ever had in my life. It was horrendous. Because they had this mustard-based sauce. I mean, it was worthless. And they even sell it in the airport. You know, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that stuff in my crankcase. But we talk about greatest barbecue. We talk about greatest cheeseburger. The greatest football team. See, what we're talking about is when you're talking about the greatest, you're talking about the best. Um, and it's interesting because you, as we discuss these different things, you guys in your mind, you start speaking of why it's good and why it's the best and uh, the, the different uh, aspects of it. See, when you do that, you're, you're a walking advertisement for whoever it is that you think is the best. Uh, what you're doing is you're speaking of the uh, worthiness of that particular institution of that particular restaurant, of that particular product. Uh, that's what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 9. What they are doing in this prayer is that uh, this is a prayer of worthiness. This is a prayer, or, or could I say this? This is a prayer of worship. I, I, think, uh, I think there are some pretty screwy ideas about worship, to be honest with you. Um, my, uh, my, my son Josh, as well as my son John, we've had some discussions about worship. Because they'll go to different deals. Uh, John's going to school in California, and Josh is going to go there this fall. But uh, they'll go to different church deals or different camps. And one of the things they tell me is 
is, uh, and I've been to some of these deals sitting in the back, but they'll have these things for kids, and they'll, they'll do these worship things that are two hours long. And they sing song after song after song after song. And, and both of my boys have said, you know, Dad, I think there's something wrong with me. And I said, why? And they said, because I can't, I can't do that for that long. I get bored. I, 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 get, uh, I can't do that. And some of these kids, they just get into it, and they get into it, and they get into it. And, and they feel bad because they, they can't get into it. And uh, I said, well, that's all right. You don't need to feel bad about that. But, but everybody else kind of gets into it. And they, you know. I said, well, that's all right. You don't need to feel bad. Because you see, um, worship, what is worship? Wor worship is ascribing worthiness to God. See, God is the best. God is the greatest. And when we worship, what we're doing is, is that we're complimenting. We are ascribing uh, and describing the greatness of God when we worship. Um, uh, Christians have always worshipped. And we've got this debate going on these days about, you got the debate over Christian music. And if you're an old guy, if you're over 50, you know, there's certain songs you like. And if you're a younger guy, there's certain songs that you like and you don't like the other stuff. It's the thing about songs is the content. Because you see, when you worship and you're ascribing worthiness, you have to use your mind. You have to. It's, it's not a feeling, necessarily, although a feeling can come. You can have, a, you can have feelings over uh, the greatness of something. You can have a feeling about the greatness of God. But it has to run through your mind. And when we worship, what we're doing is we are extolling the virtues. What we are doing is we're complimenting. Um, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Now see, uh, Charles Wesley thought that out when he pinned it out. And he is describing exactly what happened when Christ went to the cross for it. That's amazing. That's amazing love, isn't it? That God would die for me. That's amazing. Um, but, but then uh, there are some modern choruses. Some of them are really good. Some of them aren't so good. There's one that drives me nuts. Uh, it's, I could sing of your love forever. I could sing of your love forever. And you may like that song. That's fine. I don't, I don't particularly, I don't, that doesn't hit me, especially when they sing in his love forever. <laughs> After about the 12th time, I'm thinking, how long are we going to do this? Because you see, because I need to do more than that. Because that can just become a mantra. That can just become a, a rhythm. That can just become vain repetition. And that's not what worship is. You see, it can get, I could sing of your love for, I could sing of your love. That's like a broken record. I could sing of your love. Well, that's not what heaven is. That's not what eternal life, it's not singing of it. It's more, there's, there's more to it than that. There needs to be more content to that. Because there are different aspects of, of, of the character of God and who God is. Um, I, I, you can sing that and not use your mind. You guys getting this? Worship has to do with your mind. 
you're thinking. And when you're thinking, you're, you're, um, let's just worship the Lord. What does that mean? That means you use your mind. Some people think it means you throw your mind away. That's not worship. Sometimes in worship services, I don't sing. And you know why I don't sing? I don't sing because I, I'm captured by some of the words and I'll just be quiet in order to focus and, and I'm trying to think about what those words are saying. So why can't you think and sing? Well, because I'm just kind of challenged. Uh, most people can do that, but it diverts me. And so sometimes I won't sing. I'm just, and I'll just, I'll just think about it because there's great stuff being said. Um, here's, a, here's a modern worship song. Um, how's that thing go? Um, uh, Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing, power and majesty, praise to the king. Uh, mountains bow down, catch this. Mountains bow down and the seas will roar at the sound of your name. Boy, there's content. There's content. That's Job 29, or is it 39? I think it's 29. Maybe it's 39. It's in Job. But God talks about the sea and how he made it, how he controlled it, how he put borders on it, so you can go this far and no further. See, that's worship. Um, churches that let's just worship and don't use their minds, may I say this to you? It's not worship. It's, it's an emotion, it's a feeling, it's a rock concert, you know? Only they're not smoking dope. But a lot of times, there's the same emotional reaction. They're just high. And they're not high on the content, they're high on the music. And nothing wrong with music, different kinds of music. As long as you can understand what's being said. Because there's a message in worship. In Nehemiah 9, they're worshiping, and they're worshiping in the form of a prayer. Now, Nehemiah 8 was all about the word. Nehemiah 9 is all about prayer and worship, and both are part of the Christian life. You've got the word, you've got worship. Uh, it's just not the word, because what the word does is that the word leads you to worship, you see? So beginning in Nehemiah 9, you remember in 8, they got all the people gathered. And Ezra is reading the word of God. Um, beginning with 9, it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, we're still in the seventh month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them, and the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. You say, that's worship? That's worship. Uh, in Nehemiah 9, we're going to walk away through this tonight, and I want to show you different aspects of worship. Because worship, um, worship is, is something that we do in different ways with different expressions. But it's all worship. Um, turn over to Romans 12, if you would, and then we'll come back to Nehemiah 9. You, you guys ever struggle, you ever sometimes not get into worship? And other people are getting into it. That happens to me. Well, if the mind isn't used in worship, once again, it's not worship. Romans 12, he says, Paul says here, 
I urge, you, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's interesting. I want you to present your bodies. Well, what is your body comprised of? Your body is comprised of a body and uh, a soul and a spirit, right? We could break it up in different ways. You've got a mind. You've got a will. What he's saying is present your whole self to God. That's your spiritual service of worship. And then note verse 2. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, what? Mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and, and perfect. Um, see the place of the mind and how it ties into worship? Let's go back to Nehemiah 9. In Nehemiah 9, they've been gathered together and they've heard the word of God. As a result of hearing the word of God, worship begins to take place. Now, right out of the blocks, you may not say, well, that doesn't look like worship, but can I say this to you? And I'm going to give you, a, I'm going to give you some highlights of worship as we go through here. Verse 1 tells us that worship is sorrow over sin. That's worship. Worship is sorrow over sin. They assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. That's how they expressed their sorrow for the sin that they had committed. How do you express sorrow in your life? For sin that you've committed. Sometimes we're really hit with sorrow. Fact of the matter is, every guy in this room has great and deep sorrow over what we've done in the past. Every guy in this room, we'd give just about anything to go back and undo some things. We do just about anything to go back and take back the hurt that we have caused to other people and the disappointment and the pain and the damage. We would do just about anything to take back an act that we did that has caused uh, shame and humiliation to us, uh, to people we love, gosh, we deeply regret it, you see. So how do you handle that? So, so what's genuine? How do you worship God when you sin? You worship him by showing uh, genuine sorrow, deep sorrow. It's nothing you make up. It's nothing you manufacture. It's nothing you consult with a PR firm about. It's either there or it isn't. If, if it's genuine, it's there, and it's in your gut. And uh, you may not put on sackcloth and ashes, but you may have a knot in your gut. And you may have uh, pain in your chest. That's why it would be good to have some tears coming down out of your eyes. Because, you know, you know God made both men and women with tear ducts. You guys know that, don't you? He just didn't give tear ducts to women. He gave, he gave them to men. Max Lucado, Max wrote a thing one time on tears. I should have brought it. I didn't think about it until right now. But I, I told Max one time, I said, I said, I'd like to read your grocery list sometime. Because the guy can write. I, I mean, the guy just writes. He, he's an unbelievable writer. You know, he wouldn't say, he wouldn't say carrots and peas. He'd, he'd have some way of saying it. But he did this thing on tears, and he's, he's basically, I remember something. He says, tears are tiny little messengers that come out from our hearts and roll down our cheeks and convey what words could never express. 
but God's able to read. And our wives are able to read. Our kids are able to read. You ever had someone just choke up you're talking to because they can't talk? But you can read them, can't you? You know what tears do? Tears decompress tight chest. That's what they do. We don't do sackcloth and ashes, but uh, see, tears, tears can be worship because worship is sorrow over sin. That's what was going on here. See something else about worship in verse 2. Uh, it's just not sorrow over sin, but that converts, you see, worship is confession of sin. You see that? And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Huh. Uh, confession. Confession is, the, is, is admitting. Uh, confession is acknowledging. Confession is not deflecting. Uh, confession is not minimizing what you've done. Uh, confession is not uh, blaming uh, someone as you take partial. Confession is just saying, Lord, I did it. I did it. But 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess, flip over that. Because if you're not familiar with this, you need to see it. Yeah, sure, Dave. Probably the most interesting thing I find that verse is the last word, fathers. Fathers, yeah. What's that all about? I mean, why are they praying for their fathers? Well, they're praying about their fathers, and that's a great question. I was going to get into that in a little bit. But one of the things, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, and we'll touch on it again. But they're making a national prayer here. It's all the people. It's the remnant who's gathered back together in Jerusalem. And what he's going to do here in a little bit, he's going to go back. They're going to go back over their history. And see, when you're talking about your history, when you're talking about Israel's history or your history, You've got to talk about fathers, you see? And the fact of the matter is, their fathers, their fathers screwed up. And that's why they went into exile. And that's why they were removed from their land, and now they're back in their land. And he mentions here the fathers, because the fathers had sinned, which had taken them into exile, and now they're back, and they don't want to continue in the sins of the fathers. That's in a, in a nutshell. That's what that's about. See? And again, we'll touch on that more in just a little bit. 1 John 1, 9. Let's pick up at 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. There is a branch of Christian teaching. Uh, there is a branch of theology. Some denominations believe that you can get to a point of sinless perfection where you will not sin. Uh, a lady came up to C.H. Spurgeon said, Mr. Spurgeon, I have not sinned in 30 years. He said, you must be very proud. She said, I am. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't even get it. <laughs> if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, 
and to cleanse us from most unrighteousness. <laughs> now, that's a great concept. He cleanses us from all. There's a principle. Hey, can you confess sin you don't know about? I, I don't think, I mean, you, you could try, but it's kind of hard to do because you don't know what you're talking about. I think we confess our known sin. All right, I sin. I need to confess that sin. The amazing thing about God is when I confess my known sin, he cleanses me from all sin. Even the sin I'm aware of, that, the sin that I've committed, I'm not even aware of. And you know, we deceive ourselves all the time, don't we? Isn't that great? So, there's confession back in Nehemiah. They confess their sins, and because of the context, because of the context, they, con they confess the sins of the fathers, which was idolatry and going after other gods um, in sexual sin and burning children alive to Baal Moloch. That's what they're confessing. Um, Well, I think, I, I think we can do that. Yeah, I, I think biblically, if, because you see, I, I think, how could we use this example? Uh, I'll give you an example, okay? If you grew up in a home where your dad said nigger, you see, you, that's how you were raised. Well, that's probably not, and, and see, 40, 50 years ago, that was pretty common in white families. Not in all white families, but in some, you see. So, um, uh, you know, that, uh, that kind of outlook on people that have been made in the image of God and are valuable to God, or someone that's made of a different color, uh, my gosh, where did that color come from? Well, God invented that, you see. Uh, so, you know, sometimes I think we have to confess our own sin and, and, and some sin is passed down. I mean, it's just not a prejudice. It's all kinds of sin that can be passed down. You see. So, uh, so in a sense, you see, we, 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 don't live, we, we don't live in isolation. We're linked. We're all linked. There's a chain. You know, a family tree, I think, is better described as a family chain. And it's just, no, no it is. Not in a necessarily bad sense, because you can have a great family. But you've got a family chain. Chains are good things. Chains are individual links linked to others. You see? Now, sometimes what needs to happen in a family is that a new link needs to be put in the chain. You see? A link of following Christ needs to be put in a family chain. But uh, Mary and I are linked, and my mom and dad are linked, and my grandpa and grandma are all in the same way in your family. See? And my kids at least put a link in, and their kids, you see? Um, now, can we confess the sins of other people? Well, I think in the sense that, Lord, for, forgive what's been wrong in the past in our family. And help me not to repeat that. I think that's how you can look at that. Verse 3, interesting and important concept. Worship is based on the Word. On the Word. While they stood in their place... They read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped. 
the Lord their God. Um, I, I think what's being referred to here, most scholars say, would be a 12-hour, um, uh, a half day, probably. So you've got maybe three hours. You've got maybe four hours at the most because you, you, you're, you're not including the time of sleep. But they had three to four hours where they read from the Word, and for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. And see, there's the balance again. You've got the Word, and you've got worship. There is no worship without the Word. The Word and the Spirit always work together. Always. Um, verse 4. Worship is continual confession of sin. Continual. Um, Uh, they have the men on the Levites platform. You've got these different guys that assisted uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Now that's tied with verse 3, where they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. The Christian life is a walk. And as I walk through life, you know what happens to me? I, I'll, I'll sin, I confess my sin to the Lord, and he cleanses me from all unrighteousness. And then I'll walk a little further, and you know what happens? I sin again and I get dirty. So I, it's, it, the Christian life is a walk where we're in relationship with the Lord and we confess when we offend God and when we uh, uh, violate his word. Isn't that what you do with your wife? Isn't that what you do in any relationship? You're walking in a relationship with someone. You fall short. You disappoint them. You hurt them. You say, sweetheart, I'm sorry. You confess what you did and you ask their forgiveness. See, that's relationship. It doesn't mean you're not in relationship. It means that as you're in relationship, that's how you maintain the relationship. There's an issue, there's sin, there's wrongdoing. You deal with it. You confess it. You admit it. That's how we walk through life. You see? Now, now we're going to get into a section here where they, where they really get with it in terms of the greatness of God, which is the basis of their worship. Uh, and here's where they're going to put a wide-angle lens on the camera. They don't have, what's a normal lens? You know what I'm talking about? You get a 35 millimeter camera, you get a normal lens. Yeah, 50 millimeter? All right, you just see everything normally. They're going to back up here and they're going to go wide angle because these people had a history. And, 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 you know, sometimes we have trouble worshiping and sometimes we have trouble praying. There's some stuff in here that can help you, can help me. Um, I mean, this is good stuff, very practical stuff. You ever get stuck, Wayne? You ever get stuck? Not only do I get stuck, sometimes I lose my thought. You ever praying? And you're praying, Lord, you know, and I, I want to pray about the situation. And, and I, gosh, I got to take that. I haven't had the oil change in that suburban. I'm about six weeks over. Gosh, I got to run that over there. What time is it? You know, if I take that over. You know, oh, hey, hey, man, wait a minute. I'm praying. You ever had that happen to you? <laughs> happens to me all the time. What do you do in a deal like that? You know what I do? I just keep a notepad somewhere and I just write down oil change. I say, right, I got to get back to it here. You know? So it's just a relationship. You ever talk with your wife and your mind wanders? <laughs> you ever do that? And you're talking to her and all of a sudden you're off thinking, you know, about that Mavs game and. Those guys are dead. They're not going to win a game in the series. And you're thinking, she's telling you this heartfelt thing, and you've got to kind of pull it back. 
See? That's because it's a relationship. You see? You kind of wander and you got to you pull it back. That's, that's prayer. It's a relationship. We're just guys. We're just, God knows us. He understands that. You know. Your wife doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. We're just guys. But, but, you know what? We're, we're human and we're dust. But we want to grow. And we want to, um, we want to mature, don't we? We don't want to be green, green fruit for the rest of our lives. Uh, don't you hate that? You go into Tom Plum and they got those bananas and those suckers are green. I'm not in there for green bananas. <laughs> I'm in there for a little green on the top, just a little green on the top, mostly yellow. That's good for two days. You see, that's what I'm looking for. That's where we want to be. If you're always green, you've got a problem. Because the point is we've got to mature. The point is we've got to ripen. Now, I want you to know what these guys do in this prayer. This, this is wild stuff. In verses 5 and 6, I'm going to change the outline here a little bit. In verses 5 and 6, they worship because God is their creator. I mean, they're going all the way back here. You know, sometimes it's hard to pray for three minutes or four minutes or five minutes. There's some tips here, guys. One of the things you can do in prayer, you want to worship? Go back to creation. Look at this. This is wild stuff. Oh, may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou alone art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. How many of you guys like to fish? All right? You ever thank God for fish? I'm serious. You ever thank God that you can go fishing? That you caught a northern pike? That you caught a salmon? That you caught anything? <laughs> I went deep sea fishing with my dad off the coast of Monterey, California, and it was dead as a doornail. I mean, nobody was getting anything, and all of a sudden, boom, man, I got one. And uh, the salmon had been running all week, and it was just, and man, I got one, and everybody's excited. I mean, I'm, I mean, I, I had to have, it had a monster on there, and I pulled that sucker up, and it wasn't a salmon, it was an eel, <laughs> about six feet long, nastiest looking sucker you've ever seen. Got that sucker on deck, and this Japanese guy, he took out a baseball bat and hit, I mean, those suckers just had the teeth on it. He said, don't, don't get close, that thing will take your foot off. Came up behind that thing with a bat and just beat the crud out of that sucker's head, you know? And then he said, are you going to keep it? I said, no. Hey, but that guy was going to eat off that for two weeks. That was sushi. You see, he was excited. Yeah. Where'd that eel come from? God created that eel. Where's salmon come from? I mean, God created these things, guys. Um, the fact that God is creator is challenged. We... Uh, we challenge that in our culture. We challenge that in our universities. We challenge that in kindergarten, that God is the creator. You know what the Bible says? God says that God created the world. 
You read Genesis right out of the block. God created the world in six million years. Six billion years. Six trillion. God created the world in six days. Morning and evening, it said. Then you go over to Exodus 31, where God is making a covenant with Moses and the people, and God says to them that I want you to work six days, and I want you to rest on the seventh, because I worked six days, and I rested on the seventh. Now, you know what's interesting about that? God didn't rest because he was tired. Because God doesn't get tired. But there's a direct correlation, Exodus 31. I worked six days in creation and rested on the seventh. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested as an example to them as to how they're to live their lives. There's no reason not to take that, just as it says. We, we talked about interpreting the scriptures. A couple weeks, there's a normal, natural sense of the text. And there's nothing in the scriptures that I see. Oh, but you say, oh, but, but, yeah, but what? We don't interpret the Bible through the lens of science. We interpret the Bible. The Bible's the authority. God could have created in six nanoseconds. Why did he pick six days? As an example to us, how we're to live our lives. It's amazing. You read through the Psalms, you read through the Psalms, they're always talking about the creation. They're always talking about the, that he's the creator. You know, you know that Christ is the creator? He created all things? Jesus did? It's an amazing thing. I love this guy, Stephen Charnock. Light little book he did called The Existence and Attributes of God. A little bedtime reading. You know what's wild about this guy? He co-pastored a church in England with my favorite Puritan, a guy named Thomas Watson. You talk about two studs that could teach the scriptures. These guys were unbelievable. Um, he has this thing on the existence of God and God as creator. We can only take a couple paragraphs of this, but, but, but just... Let me make sure I got, I, I got four pages marked. I can't read all of it. Um, I'll give you just a taste of this. This is great stuff. Uh, he says, the sea affords water to the rivers. The rivers, like so many veins, are spread through the whole body of the earth to refresh it and enable it to bring forth fruit for the sustenance of man and beast. Then he goes on, he says, the mountains that are not clothed with grass for his food are set with stones to make him a habitation. They have their peculiar services of metals and minerals. What's he talking about? He's talking about the mountains. You know? I love this stuff. For the conveniency and comfort and benefit of man, things which are not fit for his food are medicines for his care under some painful sickness. Where the earth brings forth not corn, it brings forth roots for the service of other creatures. Wood abounds more in those countries where the cold is stronger than in others. Can this be the result of chance or not rather of an infinite wisdom? I love that. It's not the Sahara forest. It's the Sahara desert. You don't need wood in the desert because it's already warm. You need wood in the north woods where it's cold. Uh, 
He says, all things in the world, one way or other, center in a usefulness for man. Some to feed him, some to clothe him, some to, to delight him, others to instruct him, some to exercise his wit, and others his strength. Since man did not make them, he did not also order them for his own use. If they conspire to serve him, who never made them, they direct man to acknowledge another who is the joint creator, both of the Lord and the servants under his dominion. He's speaking in England 400 years ago. And therefore, as the inferior natures are ordered by an invisible hand for the good of man, so the nature of man is by the same hand ordered to acknowledge the existence and the glory of the creator of him. Everything we have comes from the creator. Everything. So did you take Claritin today? Stop those allergies? Where'd Claritin come from? Well, some guy in a lab got together. Some guys got together and they said, where'd they get the stuff to go into Claritin? God created it. How about penicillin? How about antibiotics? Where's that stuff come from? God created it. Everything that we have, God created. Isn't that amazing? You wear a shirt that's 100% cotton? Where'd that chump on cotton come from? God made it. Uh, he's talking more about creation. This order or subserviency is regular and uniform. Everything is determined to its particular nature. The sun and moon make day and night, months and years, determine the seasons, never are defective in coming back to their station and place. They wander not from their roads, shock not, they shock not against one another, nor hinder one another in the functions assigned them. The, the, the moon and the sun never collide. Hebrews says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. That amazing stuff. They give glory to God. They worship God because God's the creator. You know, we, we talk about, you ever have time to stop and smell the roses? Well, you know, when you smell the roses, thank God for making the roses. Because he's, he's the one who made them. You know, Lord, just thank Thanks, Lord. Gosh. You're in a park. We get some trees. That are, I, love, I love the trees where we live. I just love it. I get a bench under those trees. And, and some mornings I'll, early, I'll go out there and I'll sit under that bench and I'll watch those squirrels. And, and you know what that is? That's creation. That's fun to watch. Where does that come from? That evolved? That just come by time and chance? You know one of the tragic things about Charles Darwin? The end of his life? He lost his sense of smell. He lost his sense of taste. Couldn't even taste food. Couldn't even smell the flowers. Isn't that tragic? But see, he denied the one who made them in the first place. Uh, you ever get stuck on worship? Just thank God for what he's created. Just thank God for, for where you live. Thanks, thank God. Have you ever thought about where you live? That God, before the foundations of the world, arranged things and arranged your life so wherever it is you live that you'd have that place of habitation at this particular point in your life. Did you know that? You know, that's not by chance. I'm just telling you, that's how God works. You got a place to live? You got food, clothing, shelter? You know what? That's a gift. He's the creator. Not only is he the creator, but he sustains the creation. See, when you start thinking about that, when you start thinking about that, you know what you're going to start doing? You're going to start worshiping and saying, thank you, Lord, for 
You see what you've done. It's not always, see, so many folks, so many folks, they think worship is. Hey, uh, if you want, that's okay. I'm telling you, worship's more than that. If you're doing this and this and not thinking, that's not worship. You've got to think about who he is. Is this making sense to you guys? Yeah. All right. Then go like this. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Do the wave. That's good. Verses 7 through 18. They worship because he created their nation. This is pretty wild. Beginning with verse 7. Thou art the Lord God who chose Abram. Who was Abram? He was the first Jew. God made a covenant with Abram in, in Genesis 12. He was the guy from whom they all descended and brought him from Ur of Chaldees. You brought him out and gave him the name Abraham. And thou didst find his heart faithful before thee, and you made a covenant with him. And thou hast fulfilled thy promise, for thou art righteous. Where, where are they praying this prayer? In Jerusalem, in the land which was promised. I was reading something this week about how uh, Arafat and the Palestinians have made this big deal that Jerusalem is the third holy city of Islam. Jerusalem has never been a holy city of Islam. Jerusalem is, how many times is Jerusalem mentioned in the Bible? It's everywhere. The Bible says Jerusalem is the center of the earth. You know, the word, you know Jerusalem is never once mentioned in the Koran? Not once. It's not a Palestinian city. It's a Jewish city. It belongs to Israel. That's just propaganda. Now, you say, well, that's all well and good. That's interesting that they worship God because he created their nation. How does that relate to me? Well, go over to Galatians 3, because it relates to us, believe it or not. You go over to Galatians in the New Testament, kind of in the middle of your New Testament, if you're, if you're new to your Bible. Um, just keep looking, you'll find it. Galatians 3, 6, it says, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now, you know who that means? That would mean us. We're sons of Abraham because you're a son of Abraham by faith. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's us, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. Isn't that interesting? See, they're thanking God for the creation of their nation, which was Israel. We should thank God for the creation of the nation of Israel because it was through the covenant of Abraham that through faith we've been grafted in, the scripture says. Um, I've made this point before, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 12 where God made that first covenant with Abraham, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. Now catch this. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord Jesus Christ came through the nation of Israel. Through him all the nations of the world are blessed. I was reading today about a, a Christian school in Baghdad 
that has been under the radar for 10 years. It's a classical Christian school that teaches children the scriptures. They teach them theology. They teach them uh, apologetics. They teach them Latin, which would get them ready to learn Greek so they could read the New Testament in Greek in Baghdad. They existed for 10 years. Isn't that amazing? Now, those, those little kids that have been through that school, have they been blessed? Sure, because they know Christ. Those Iraqi little kids have been blessed through Abraham and through the scriptures and through Christ. See, wherever the gospel goes, nations are blessed. Wherever the gospel goes, nations improve. Wherever the gospel goes, the status of women go up. They don't have rape rooms like they had in Iraq. That doesn't happen where Christianity is taught, does it? You ever thank God that you live in this country? Well, how'd this country get so great? It's because the liberals made it this way. <laughs> the, the liberals are the ites. They are. You need to know that. They're the ites. They're the Canaanites. Highly civilized, highly educated, godless reprobates. You need to understand. That's their worldview. Whatever's right, they're against it. I don't care what their political party. That's not the issue. It's their mindset. It's their heart. It's anti-God, it's anti you see. All right, I'm feeling better now. <laughs> so, Lord, thank you for this country that was founded on the Koran. Thank you for this country that was founded on the Word of God. You know, there are, um, all right, I got to move. That goes all the way down, that goes all the way down through verses 7 through 18. They worship because he created their nation. All right, I got I, I to move so I don't get totally hung up here. Um, verses 19 through 22, they worship because he led their nation. That's what those verses are all about. In 9... Verses 19 through 22, he led them. Now this is speaking of, this is speaking of them uh, historically. And you can see the, the history. Um, Thou in thy great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. How long were they in the wilderness? Forty years. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day. The cloud protected them from the hot sun uh, to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Thou didst give thy good spirit to instruct them. My manna thou didst not withhold from their mouth, and thou didst give them water for their thirst. Indeed, for 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. That's amazing. You're talking two to three million people in the wilderness for 40 years. Where did I find this? This is wild. Recently, some scholars got together, and they figured out what it would take to provision two to three million people a day. And remember, they did it for 40 years. According to an army quartermaster, 
Moses would have required 1,500 tons of food each day to feed two to three million people. Did you get that? 1,500 tons. If they could have hauled that amount of food in railroad boxcars, a single day's provision would have required two freight trains each a mile long to bring in the supplies, not including the firewood for cooking. The children of Israel would have needed 4,000 tons of fuel per day to cook their food. So what did God do for 40 years? He just provided for them. He gave them what you call manna. Manna was like a sweet honey wafer substance. And they'd get up in the morning, and it was there. And God said, you take what you need for the morning, but don't take more. If they took more, it would spoil on them. And then at night, at twilight, at dinner time, they would get what they needed for dinner. And they were not to take more than they needed because the next morning, God would provide in the morning what they needed. You see? And then again at night. But on the Sabbath, you see, they were not to, they were not to pick up manna on the Sabbath. So on the last day, God would give them, they were to take more on the last day in order to provision for the Sabbath. And what they took more on that last day would not spoil, but would be preserved. Isn't that wild? I love that. Nobody likes getting laid off. Nobody wants that. But when you get laid off, that's when you find the manna. See, when your savings is gone, and when you cash in your IRAs, man, you didn't want to cash those babies in. Because, see, that's your retirement. Yeah, well, that's not your retirement. Just thank God you had the money in the IRA to go cash it in. That was God's provision. Didn't you? You ever put money away for a rainy day? And then it rains. Oh, what the heck? What are you upset about? God gave you a provision that you had it, and then you know what will happen? You say, well, yeah, but that's just about out. Well, guess what? Guess what? Then God will do something else. And then, and then, how many of you guys have been through this, what I'm talking about? Okay. See what I'm talking about? And then, see, you can tell that to your children, and you can tell that to your grandchildren, that there's a God in heaven who's real and alive and active and who provides and will take care of every need that you ever have. And we'll get it to you just in time, and just when you're about to run out, it'll, it'll be there. It's the way it always works. The way it always works. Every single time. That's great stuff. Charles Schwab can't do that. And Merrill Lynch can't do that. And Wall Street can't. You know, there's, it's great to live on the promises of God. And see, when you see God do that for you, then you can worship. And when you get discouraged and, and you get down and you get yourself in a jam, you can look back and say, you know, Lord, I remember when you, then I remember when you did, and I remember when you did, and what happens is your faith, it's like laying a fire. When you make a fire, you, you, know, you immediately start with a raging bonfire. So a lot of times we think worship, we've got to be some kind of hype. How do you pray? I think it's just like making a fire. You know, you get, you get a little kindling together. It's not some big roaring thing. You get a little kindling, you just kind of, kind of stoke it a little bit, you know? And you put a little, little 
you know, starts going. And you get, I mean, it takes a little time to build that. That's the way worship is. I don't know about you, but I mean, worship all the time is some raging bonfire of devotion to God. Sometimes you've got to build that sucker little by little. Is this making any sense to you guys? Keep going. Somebody do this. No, I'm... <laughs> See, in the charismatic church, you know they're listening because they're all moving. That was a little humor. <laughs> you guys didn't get it. All right. <sighs> got to watch that. Call. All right. Verses 23 through 30. They worship God because he disciplined them. Seven verses on this. 23 through 30. Uh, he gave them all the stuff, but they didn't love him from their hearts. It says, And thou didst subdue them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and thou didst give them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. Um, God gave them a great land, the promised land. But verse 26 says, they became disobedient and rebelled against thee. The amazing thing about the history of Israel is this. Um, he disciplined them in their own land because of their sin. Uh, you can read about that in the book of Judges. Uh, and then through Kings and through Chronicles. He disciplined them in their own land. But because they refused for hundreds of years to get their hearts right before God, then he disciplined them in another land. See, then he had to take them off into captivity. He took the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, and about 100 years later, he takes the southern kingdom, Judah, by the Babylonians. And see, the significance of that is they were in captivity. Nehemiah was born in captivity, and now they're coming back to the land because of the sin. And that's, Dave, why he mentioned the sin of the fathers, because they didn't want to do that again. They were an idolatrous nation. You can say this about Israel. From this point on in their history, they didn't worship idols again. You can say that for them. They didn't go after other gods. God gave them all this prosperity in the promised land. And you know what? They couldn't handle it. Thomas Carlyle said this, For every hundred men who can handle adversity, there is only one who can handle prosperity. Prosperity can turn your heart away from God. Do you know that God is oftentimes gracious to us because he does not give us what we ask him for? So if you set all these personal goals monetarily and God has not given them to you, thank God that he hasn't. Be careful of asking God for things. Be careful. Because you don't know what you can handle. You know what I pray sometimes? I'll just be honest with you. I say, Lord, I thank you. You've been very, your blessing, your favor. But Lord, you know my heart. And, and Lord, I, uh, I, I don't ask you to improve my lot. I don't ask you to promote me. Because I don't know if I can handle it. Um, so I don't ask for it. I might be asking for something that might ruin me. In other words, Lord, you know, some, we always want to get to the next level. You know what, Lord? If the next level is going to screw me up, don't take me to the next level. Just keep me right here. Just be gracious to me. You don't always need to be expanding. 
doesn't always need to be next level. You know, just Howard Hendricks said years ago, if you worry about the depth of your ministry, God will take care of the breadth of your ministry. You get to know him. You love him right where you are. John Steinbeck said, if you want to destroy a nation, give it too much. You'll make it greedy, miserable, and sick. You know it would be real good for us? A Great Depression. I got this book in my library. It's a wild book. And it's a book that all these people went through the Depression. It's about all, I can't remember the title, but I remember the subtitle. Precious Memories of the Great Depression. Isn't that wild? You know, before the Great Depression, there were the Roaring Twenties. You know, the pregnancy rate in America among teenagers went crazy in the Roaring Twenties. Do you know why? Because for the first time, you had automobiles. And, and entertainment took place outside of the farm and outside of the home. And kids would get in cars and they'd go into the city. And so you'd have boys and girls in cars unsupervised for the first time in history in America. That didn't used to happen, did it? You go courting, you go over there and sit on the porch and sip ice cream, and the old man's eyeball on you the whole time. <laughs> right? And you never did feel comfortable. You couldn't wait to get out of there. You see? That's how you take care of teenage pregnancy. See, roaring 20s, we went crazy. Then a Great Depression came along. What happened? Suddenly everybody wants the Lord. Chuck made a comment, I don't know, a year or two ago. He said, he said, you know, it's always interesting in every city how many church buildings, where there's a cornerstone, how many of them were built in the 30s? It's amazing. How many church buildings were put up in the 30s? Well, why would they be doing that? There wasn't much money. Yeah, but people were flocking to the churches because people had a great sense of God because there wasn't prosperity. Prosperity can be a curse because it takes your heart away from the Lord. Here's the last one. They worship because of the grace of God. This is the last one. Verses 31 through 38. See, I haven't even read all these verses, have I? See how much stuff is here, guys? 31 through 38, they worship because of the grace of God. I'll just do, uh, 32 says, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, is that how you think of God? The great, the mighty, the awesome God. In 1855, Charles Spurgeon got up to preach. And here's what he said. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is the study of man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of Christian of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity. What's he talking about? God. So deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content, and we go our way with the thought, I am wise. 
But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away. No subject of contemplation will tend to more humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while thoughts of God humble the mind, they also expand the mind. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and this glorious trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout and earnest continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Can you take one more paragraph? And while it is humbling and expanding, this thinking of God, it is also consolatory. There is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In thinking on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balsam for every soul. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go and plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which, which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak to the winds of trial as a devout thinking upon the subject of the Godhead. It is that subject to which I invite you this morning. C.H. Spurgeon uttered those words when he was 20 years old. 20. Isn't that great? guy wasn't watching cartoons. <laughs> See, when he preached, people worshipped. Why? Because he knew this book, and he knew this God. He knew he was a great, mighty, awesome God. Um, you can read the rest of it. They worship because of the grace of God. One last quote. The grace of God is what Christianity is all about. The grace of God is what the Bible is all about. Because you know what? We've all screwed up. Every one of us. We've all sinned. We've all come short. We've all got stuff we wish to go back and undo. Shoot, I have things today I wish I... I have things yesterday. i got to make two phone calls tomorrow because of what I said yesterday in a meeting. i got to follow up and clarify because I said the wrong thing. I'm going to call him and deny I said it. <laughs> That's the American way. Now I'm going to call him and say, hey, you know what I said? You know what I said? Because in all honesty, I said something and it was taken a certain way. But I honestly didn't mean it that way. I think it would be sin for me to leave that impression. And I didn't catch it until after the meeting. I got to call back. I, gotta, I just got to circle around and say, hey, let me clarify something. Because if they think that's what I intended, that's sin. Wouldn't honor God. This is Piper, John Piper. You guys know John Piper? Get on his website, desiringgod.org. Great stuff. God never stops doing good to his covenant people. Never. And if an enemy is temporarily given the upper hand in your life, we can say straight into the muzzle of a gun, as some people had to say in Lebanon yesterday when they were murdered for their faith. 
you mean evil against me, but God means it for good. He quotes Jeremiah 32, 41. I will rejoice in doing them good. The Lord will again take delight in prospering you. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 9. Catch this. It's talking about the grace of God. There is a kind of eagerness about the graciousness of God. He does not wait for us to come to him. Did you guys catch that? He does not wait for us to come to him. He seeks us out because it is his pleasure to do good. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro about the earth to show his might in behalf of those whose heart is whole towards him. That's 2 Chronicles 16.9. Now catch this. God loves to show mercy. Let me say it again. God loves to show mercy. He is not hesitant or indecisive or tentative in his desires to do good to his people. His anger must be released by a safety lock, but his mercy has a hair trigger. I love that. Yeah. Did you catch that? He's got a safety lock on his anger. See, most of us think his anger's got a hair trigger. He's long, what? and abundant in loving kindness. He's got a safety lock on his anger, but his mercy, his mercy. Got a hair trigger. You know what I heard? You ever, you ever do a hair? Sucker went off. That's the mercy. See, all the time, you know what's happening in my All the time, there's the mercy. It's the mercy. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. It's a machine gun of mercy. That's grace. That's how I can live. That's how you can live. That's how we can keep going on, despite of all our screws. Isn't that great? And because of the mercy, see, that mercy, every time I, that mercy goes on, I just, I can worship with my mind. So, Lord, we thank you. This is a great prayer. We couldn't even begin, Lord, to, man, we, we didn't even scratch the bark off this thing. But, Lord, you know, we want to worship, and we get confused about that. We see people on TV sometimes, and they're weird, and we don't understand what they're doing. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't apply to real life. But they're into it, and we're not, and we think something's wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with us. Lord, if we just use our mind, if we love you with all our hearts and souls and minds, and if we take some time to think about our past and about what you've done, think how you've created us and brought us in, Think about our kids, how you created them, and our grandkids. We're going to worship. And we're going to pray, and we're going to talk to you. Now, I pray tomorrow, we start the new day, you'll help us to worship. Just as we're going through life, something happens at the office. We look out the window, and we see a gorgeous tree. We see some roses in bloom. We just say, thanks, Lord, you did that. That honors you. Next time we see the stars on a clear night, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. You made those stars. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. The sun and the moon never collide. You got it under control. That, that ratchets down our anxiety level, Lord. Uh, you brought us into existence. You've got a plan for us. You sustain us. You feed us. Some of us need some manna tomorrow. We need it bad. And you know it. 
Some of us have got a mortgage payment to make, and we're short. You'll be Jehovah Jireh for us. You'll meet our needs. We trust you. Help us to sleep tonight. Help us to rest, because you're a sovereign God that we worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, guys, have a great week, huh? We'll see you.